0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm Molly Presley, your host. If you haven't heard the show before, let me tell you a little bit about what Data Unchained is all about. The paradigm for data access has changed a lot over the last few years, few decades. If you think about data being generated by sensors out on the edge. We've had the introduction of cloud computing. We now have very smart applications and machine learning capabilities that are creating artificial intelligence. And so as we think about this data decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, distributed applications, different cloud regions, different AI models is really challenging. Data Unchained digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions that make data an asset that you can use globally as a resource. Today's guest is Eric Cavanaugh. He's the host of DM Radio, as well as has a lot of experience in this space. Eric, thank you for joining the show.
1: Hey, thanks for the invitation. It's exciting to be here on Data Unchained.
0: Data Unchained. So... Tell us a little bit about you before we talk about DM Radio and your work experience. What makes Eric tick? How did you get here being an AI expert?
1: Uh, I just love to learn from smart people, basically, and uh, I tend to be a fairly disorganized person. So I had to organize my week around me to keep myself moored, if you will, and uh, to keep myself focused and I also realized that uh, I'm so easily distractible that I really should go into live performance because that will force me to pay attention and force me to stay on track. So <laughs> it was a little trick I, I played the on myself. The contact
0: helps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. It's like, all right focus you're you're live you're (laughs) live pay attention don't get distracted don't check email right now all these things you know but uh, I just love to learn and I figured out a long time ago that you cannot have a software company without smart people it's just not possible so I focused on enterprise software because it's dense and interesting and and rich and very complex and uh, I years ago came up with an idea, hey, if I could just get three or four people on a virtual call every week on a different topic, I can learn all about this technology, do a bunch of networking, make some great content, and maybe even get paid while doing it. And so that was the whole vision. And uh, I just kind of keep going. And uh, it's it's almost more bewildering with every passing day. But I do (laughs) around 10 a.m. I'm like, okay, I actually do know a couple of things. I shouldn't be too scared. I do know a couple (laughs) of things. All right, let's dive right in. So, yeah, that's really what got me into this business. And frankly, what probably inspired me was Eric Idle from uh, Monty Python. Because if you remember, he always do those skits where he's like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what I mean, know what I mean? He would always do these uh, talk show skits, and I thought they were just hysterical, (laughs) all the little goofy things they would do. And that, combined with listening to talk radio in the morning on the way to school, probably just burned into my brain and created layers of embeddings that sort of shepherded me down this path.
0: It's funny, just before we kicked off the live recording, we were talking about some kinds of comedy um, and humor being a learned humor. I was actually thinking of Monty Python in my head as we were talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that everybody loves Monty Python, but boy, once you do, you know every line from every skit ever, and John Cleese is your hero, I think. so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the holy grail when oh my they gosh, go, yeah. <laughs> when they see Camelot the first time, and like, Camelot, Camelot. And then the little squire's like, it's only a model. <laughs> like, what? Don't so say that. Funny. You're ruining it. Like, they got the coconuts banging them together. It's like, mm-hmm. we've ridden across great lands. No, you haven't. You got two coconuts and you're banging them together. <laughs> They're pretty silly.
0: They are very silly. Um, Eric, so you have a show. You're joining ours today, Data Unchained. Um, tell us about DM Radio.
1: I have DM Radio. I call it the longest running show in the world about data. We launched in February of 2008, uh, and it was all about data. DM stood for data management. For uh, elderly people in the industry like me, you'll remember DM Review, which was a great magazine in the space back when we had magazines that we would read. Those were the exciting old days, right? You printed them and you carried them around. You opened them and read them. Not a whole lot of magazine reading going on these days, but uh, back in those days, it was a big deal. And so I wanted to get this launched, actually, when I was working for the Data Warehousing Institute, and they didn't want to go with it. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it, so I guess I'll do it somewhere else. And uh, I pitched the folks at Source Media. And said, hey, let's get this show rolling. And it's a very simple idea. Once a week, we'll get together, have a conversation virtually. We'll do different topics every week and let people subscribe to, you know, which shows they want to talk on. Uh, and that's when it sort of took off. So we've been, we're in year, what, 16? Year, next year is going to be year 17 of the show once a week and we're now syndicated coast to coast we're in DC and Atlanta and Chicago Los Angeles San Francisco a bunch of different places on real actual radio like you could drive down the street and turn on your actual radio and Here is AM and FM stations. A lot of people joke about AM. I know not a lot of young people listen to AM radio. But the good news is most big AM stations around the country have now gotten FM receivers. So they basically transpond to on FM as well. But yeah, that's it. So once a week we do that. We have another show, Inside Analysis, that's on Mondays. That's all about the information economy. And we have a TV show called Future Proof uh, that is... In about seven markets around the country including washington dc on channel 10 so check your local listings
0: that's really cool it makes it's so much harder than spinning up a podcast i assume to get into all these venues on all these different places um that's really cool um thank you curious so over the last 16 17 years you started out focusing on data management How have things changed? Like, what's your 60-second pitch of what's happened? You've heard mine on Data Unchained of how data has become more decentralized. How do you feel like data and data management has changed?
1: Yeah, well, decentralized is certainly a big part of it. I think that's the reality of Web 3.0. And in terms of how things have changed, I mean, wow almost everything has changed to a certain degree except the basics you want to get good quality data in to get good analysis out but the scale of the landscape has just blown off the wall out of the water if you will in terms of how much data we're processing how much technology is being used how the technology has progressed and of course ai which is not new is now pervasive. I mean, AI, I think we're not going to have another AI winter. We went through a couple of those where there was the hype cycle, and it was sort of a long trough of disillusionment that they call the AI winters. And I think we're fully past that. But you know, I think maybe one of the biggest changes is um, just the ability to do analysis in whole new ways. And I wonder what that's going to do to analytics architectures and traditional players. Because when I look at these foundational models and what AI can do these days, it seems to me that uh, it's going to start picking up and delivering on a lot of promises of the past more efficiently and more cost-effectively than the traditional heavy lifting of data warehousing has done. But we'll see. I mean, it's definitely going to be a balance of those two. You're going to have a data warehouse as your system of record, but you're going to have all these AI apps that are pulling signal from lots of different sources that doesn't don't necessarily have to include the data warehouse, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I think it's funny as you look at data sources, and I think all of us as an industry are trying to get aligned on terminology, and also have customers able to understand who does what in this ecosystem because it's evolving so fast. Right. But the data warehouse, at least my perspective, is it was primarily focused on structured data. It was already organized a bit, maybe already in a database or in a single location, and as you're training these big, large language models, which the company I work for, Hammerspace, is very involved in and getting data from other sources into a central location, um, <clears throat> do you feel like the, the data warehouse is just a piece of the data set now? Or how do you think about the data sources that customers are trying to use when they're working with one of these models?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it's, it'll always be a, a component and, you know, frankly, a central component. I don't think there's too much doubt about that. Data warehousing will remain significant and uh, a a strategic component of any information program. But, again, when you look at what you can ascertain via other means, because think about it, you need covariance, right, to, to understand something. You need to find a relationship between two threads, if you will. And those threads can be anything. So you talk about all the different sources of data these days. Well, of course, these large language models are trained largely on the web on whatever is available on the web. But there are so many other sources you can pull from now. Mobile devices, just geolocation data, where people are, being able to align that with what they buy somewhere, being able to align that with their profile, and see like, who's coming into a particular city on a particular day. I mean, there's so much data being bought and sold these days, and that's a fairly opaque process at the moment. I think it's going to become a bit more transparent uh, in the future, at least I hope it will be, uh, because you can get tr- tremendous advantage if you know the data, if you understand the data. And you think about stuff like credit card exhaust data, I mean, there are hedge funds that buy that stuff en masse, And they can then predict which companies will meet or beat market estimates. And if you could do that, then how do you lose in the stock market? I honestly think that's one reason why the stock market just keeps on going up and up and up, because there are enough institutional investors who have a clear enough view of what's really happening what I like to call real-world data at scale that it's kind of hard for them to lose. And, you know, I'm really lobbying for some sort of, I call it a public-facing data lake of anonymized transactional data that any business could subscribe to to find out you know, what colors are popular in retail and blouses these days in this particular region, what foodstuffs are more popular, all these kinds of basic things that can help a business plan and know what to buy because you know, the retail space gets tighter and tighter on margins all the time. And uh, for that stuff to survive and for us to all get the cool things that we want, uh, I'd like to see a leveling of that playing field, if you will. So I'm, I'm a big, big fan of transparency and of, uh, of open data and sharing data. So I'm hopeful that's going to happen because right now, the way it's set up, I may have told you my, my metaphor is if we're all playing poker... And there are four of us, and the rule is I can see all your cards, but no one can see my cards. Well, if I lose, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know the rules right. of poker. Right. So we, gotta, we have to balance that out because it puts so much power in the hands that already had tremendous power. So, yeah, that's, that's one of my wishes.
0: I love the idea of open source code and standard based code. We've, we've seen this in the software space. Right. If you think about in the data space, who will lead that? Who would have the motivation to do that?
1: Well, you hear Databricks talking a lot about that, mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. Um, that whole Hadoop movement, which you know, I think was very good in lots of different ways. I think we learned a lot about um, about parallel processing, about federated systems and system design and things of that nature. Even if the, the core of that whole ecosystem, Hadoop itself, HDFS, turned out to be not the most efficient uh, construct in the world and, you know, you look back and it's pretty easy to see why. Well, my my, my uh, now semi-retired business partner, Dr. Robin Bloor, he once said, it's a really slow database. I'm <laughs> like, well, <laughs> that's not that's not too good. But you've know, you got Apache out there. You've got the Linux Foundation. Um, although the other interesting thing that uh, Dr. Bloor mentioned one day about Apache and the ecosystem in general is he, he referred to it, not disparagingly, as a ship of fools, only because there's no captain, right? It's just, a, it's an array of projects and they have their rules and, and and policies and so forth, but there's no one sort of leading that charge But now you know you look at, of course, IBM has invested heavily in open source over the years. You're starting to hear Amazon at least pay some lip service to the importance of open source, and of course, Facebook just open sourced llama too, right? All the code, the whole shebang. Mm -hmm. So I think open source is is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I think in many ways it has been the tip of the spear that has sort of broken open this whole new array of possibilities. Because if we can all agree on the foundations, and we don't have have to spend so much time working on our own foundations then we can all specialize right if you look at all these models coming out it does remind me of the hdfs scenario remember when there were like six different versions of hdfs yeah i do (laughs) it's like all right do we need that are you guys sure
0: (laughs) so i think the large language models and training of those is an interesting topic that you want to train them with as much data as possible and then people will Take out of those mo- have different models that they'll use with their own data. Do you feel like there's a play here somewhere that this if you open source a bunch of data and you can train these train these large language models with that data, then the proprietary bit can be later when you have some model that you're using for your own case. Is that kind of how you think about it, or where does the open data source really come in? Is it more at the results and of of the AI continuum? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I think, and this is my theory, but I think that open data is just like open source in terms of its impact on the business world. So with open source, we're saying, look, you can all see what the code was. You can see how we created this thing. And there are lots of good stories around open source. One of my favorite quotes is that bad code goes away or at least most of it does because uh, there are so many eyes on the code. And then open data, I think the more you push this, and I, it is very strong in certain quarters of the business world these days, and academic world too. There's actually a very interesting company right here in Pittsburgh, where I live these days, 1486 Labs. Uh, They are pushing forward with a vision of being a liaison for data purchasers and data sellers, and trying to really facilitate opening those doors a bit. But I think that the nice thing about open data is that we can all be playing from the same field, and, and we can sort of get some agreement on What's really happening? So you think stuff like gross domestic product, these types of, of metrics are very important to understand. I mean, from a business perspective, if you can see real world data at some significant scale that shows you, okay, things are going to be slowing down in this period, so you know, tighten your budgets a bit. That's very useful information because you know, otherwise you're you just sort of guessing about things. And what I've learned is when you guess about things, you know, you can be wrong a fair number of the of the uh, times that you guess. And so the more we can agree on the basics about what's moving around, and I understand it's proprietary information that companies don't want to give away. I get that. But I think if we have a foundation, then, as you suggest, the proprietary element is going to be my business processes, my workflows, my training, my focus, where I choose to really bring my resources to bear. All of that stuff is what will allow us to to specialize. And that, I think, is what we need in this really interesting ecosystem of a world we have these days. I mean, everything down to the code, down to the processes. I mean, it's so distributed, to your point. It's a different world. I mean, it's, it's a different world. It's going to take a different skill set to kind of understand that. So to me, open source and open data are are two very strong foundational components. And you add stuff like data literacy. Now you've got three legs to a stool, and you can uh, sit down for a while.
0: In this new world as things have evolved, how do you see data architectures changing? We talked you know, a little bit about the data warehouse. Of course, is not going away, but... Kind of more broadly, how are people architecting to take advantage of this mobile data, maybe a open source data sets or open data when it comes? Is it still going to be a data center focused thing? Is it going to be done in SaaS tools? How do you envision those architectures evolving?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think that the edge really changed a lot. In terms of understanding about these things. So you've got on-prem, your original data centers, and your box, your own laptop, for example. So that's the endpoint. Then you've got the cloud, and of course, these big giants, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. And I often thank Satya Nadella, ironically enough, for saving us from the monopoly of Amazon. (laughs) the company that, that monopolized monopolies and made tons of money. Microsoft actually saved us from the monopoly of Amazon Web Services. I don't know how they got a decade head start, but they did. It was pretty impressive with uh, Jeff Bezos and company. And in fact, I interviewed Andreas Wiegand on uh, Inside Analysis a couple weeks ago. He was the chief scientist at Amazon, mm-hmm. worked directly with Jeff Bezos, and was the apparently the data coach for Jack Ma and Angela Merkel. Wow. So this guy's done some pretty interesting things. But back to your question, the Edge... Now now is this another another component to the sort of de facto architecture And I think there's just going to be all kinds of different ways to do that. You're you're already seeing smaller data centers pop up to serve the edge. And so I think what we're going to see here is very creative uses of, of, um, of information architecture to figure out at what point do we process, at what point do we persist, at what point do we just analyze the stream. I mean, there are so many ways you can do these things now. And I think it's going to be a great time for data architects, for information architects, for solution architects, because there are so many ways you can get things done. And obviously the big guys, Amazon, Google, Mike, you know, Microsoft, they want to have you gravitate toward them to store your data there and use their compute and all that stuff so they can make their money. But it's going to be incredibly varied and uh, changing all the time. You know, I think that uh, we're in a, a very tumultuous time right now, but it's a time of great opportunity and uh, a time of, of, great learning. And that was another great quote I heard the other day uh, from uh, Matt McClarty's, the CTO of Boomi. He was on a show and he said about machine learning, he goes, you know, this is a time of learning, meaning we're learning. The people mm-hmm. are learning what this stuff is doing. And yeah. I think that was a really compelling comment that he made. So I think it's going to be a real Renaissance for architecture Uh, And and there are just lots of different ways you can do things.
0: I was talking to um, the Futurum group folks the other day, and we were talking kind of similar topic about data architectures. And they're recommending to their clients that the number one thing to do is design for flexibility. And you're really Mm. saying the same thing that, you know, if you don't know which compute cores you're going to need. You don't know right. where your data is going to be coming from. Like you say, you don't even necessarily know which models you're going to be using. And so if you're investing, invest in the flexibility that your architecture can flex. You can get your data somewhere else. You can use compute somewhere else. You can use a new model. And so you know, you know, one would think that big investment in infrastructure in the data center might be a little more risky. But you know, who knows? It, it's a, it's it's an area that if I were going back to school right now or going to start a new career, I think I'd like to be a data architect. I think that'd be a super fun job to have right now.
1: Yeah. And I do think that the rumors of on-prem's demise have been greatly exaggerated. I don't sure. think on-prem is going to go away anytime soon, If for no other reason than amortization, right? The accountants are going to say, hey...
0: <laughs> You're yeah, really you going to give us you want to be use, able to use everything, right? You want right. to use your on-prem stuff. You want to be able to use some cloud stuff, maybe some edge stuff. You you just don't want to be stuck that's with right. only one. That's right. So I, you mentioned something when we were chatting the first time about you coming on the show about this is a second chance for data. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. And I think that's a great quote, as you think of good quotes. And it really is. You think data has been stored and people have done all this work in data management on How do you archive it and protect it? But this is a chance to use it again. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so thinking about these foundational models and how they bring such tremendous new functionality and capability for analysis, for discovery, which is my favorite part of the process, learning things is discovery, for compute, for generation, of course, gen AI. Uh, There's so much possibility here. And when I think about the sort of de facto information architecture of just about every company out there, it's a mess. I mean, it's just an amalgam of all sorts of different tools, technologies, databases, uh, just data everywhere in all sorts of different formats. We've tried very hard with data warehousing, for example, to solve for that for analytical purposes. And that's, of course, what a data warehouse is supposed to do, pull data from lots of sources, organize it, and allow people to analyze it in a very precise way to get hard numbers about what's really happening. But when you look at these foundational models and how they're going to be leveraged, I think it's pretty clear that just about every company that can is going to want their own foundational model of some kind. They're going to want to deploy it. They're going to want to train it with their corporate data. And that's where I say it's a second chance for data, because what you can do in that curation process is be very careful about what data you feed into your model, what data you use for your embeddings, for example. And embeddings are something I've been spending all this time trying to wrap my head around. And to to make it a human concept, think of them as memories as things you've learned or things that you've experienced in your life we are all of us an amalgam of our dna our our proteins but also the entire spectrum of experience that we've had from from genesis like not just from birth even before birth that's a pretty big deal I mean, just to give a, a random example here, I remember when my wife was pregnant, we were reading that said, you should listen to the same kind of music you'd like to when the baby is in the womb, because then when the baby is born, it's crying, you can play that music again, and they'll calm down. I was like, well, that is really interesting, because of course, this little creature is forming inside the mother. It's, it's alive, and it's got, you know, especially in the later months, it's clearly hearing stuff and feeling and doing all this stuff. So that's the beginning. Those are your earliest embeddings as a human. And if you think about how these AI engines are being characterized as teenagers, which is kind of what they are, they're teenagers with an incredible vocabulary. But if you have a, a good embeddings strategy and if you curate your corporate data carefully, then this is a whole second chance for data because I think just about everything is in the crosshairs of these models. I mean, depending upon how... The cost factors work out because I think that's not very clear right now because it's all supported by VC money, right? And sooner or later they're going to pull the string on that stuff, and you're going to have to start paying for these things you know, more than you're paying now. Is my theory? Just look at all the other freemium models, right? Mm-hmm. Like they get you mm-hmm. in these social media engines, and then they're training their algorithms on your data. They're all kind of what, what's the old line? Uh, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product, kind of thing, and uh, that that's true today still but you know when i look at the possibilities you're going to be able to do all kinds of things customer service troubleshooting you know interactive ai they say is next and i agree with this because if you think about the complexity of speaking in a human language Well, machine-to-machine language, I'm guessing, is a lot less complex than the human language, just the number of functions and commands and different things you can do. It's not as complicated, which means these models could get better and better at really optimizing, and I think Hammerspace is probably doing something here, optimizing which data is needed where and when and only moving that or accessing that as needed, as opposed to these forklift operations, which is what all this data warehousing has been with all this ETL and ELT, you know and just to kind of close the loop real quick i remember in in the first year of dm radio back in 2008 i just had this sort of epiphany thinking this etl stuff is crazy i mean they're just going around and around and around and around all this data is being moved all the time constantly and you know that there's there's redundancy you just know that there is and you know there's effort that is wasted and there's cost to that there's time there's resource and there's morale Right, so uh, I, I think these large language models do open the door for a second chance for data, and uh, I think we're going to do a better job of getting it right this time.
0: Realize that AI is everywhere, and machine learning, some of the you know similar technologies, and even in HammerSpace, we use machine learning and AI to put data where it belongs. You know, so you, so that somebody else can do AI on a different data set is kind of int- it will be interwoven. Right, I think within. All layers of the technology stack, but also all layers of the buying experience and different, you know, I think we're going to see it everywhere and it will transform everything we're doing, whether it's how we design software and data placement or, you know, how we buy products. And it's really fascinating to, you can't, you know, we we can't think about all the implications probably in our human brains at this point of where this will affect the world.
1: Yeah. Everywhere, it's it's really wild, isn't it? And that's mm-hmm. why I think transparency is important. And you know, I went to the Reuters Momentum Conference in Austin back in July. I wish they would do that one in in New York in in July and do the Austin one in November. They that do New York in logical. November and Austin in July. It's like no, no, no. you guys <laughs> well, haven't you can experienced see the, the holiday heat. lights then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, July in uh, in August in Austin is like whew, it's rough. But I was there and. the there's a guy from, I think, Responsible AI was the company, and he was saying that uh, that audit trails and accountability and explainability is out the window. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty bad news. You know, you, we're going to need some explainability. And I think the answer there is going to be your embeddings and what you put into your embeddings. What did you use to train this model? And what did that structure look like? I think that's the future of the audit trail, and uh, that's where... Auditors and regulators and others will look to understand, well, how did your engine come up with this answer? Let's take a look at those embeddings. So we do have to be careful, uh, but it is unwieldy technology at this moment. I mean, it's, uh, it's very, very powerful. And of course, the hallucinations are the are the concern. And there was a guy from OpenAI, the uh, go-to-market guy, actually. I was at, I was tweeting the Databricks conference, and one of the girls presenting commented on, oh, you don't want to put your trusted corporate data or your, you know, your important PII-type stuff into this model because it'll be used to train. And he said, oh, no, we don't do that, and they know that. But I used that opportunity to ask him a question. I said, well, what about hallucinations? And he said, well, remember, that's more of a feature than a bug. I was like, well... That is true. It is generative AI, but you want to train it as much as possible. And that's where the embeddings come in and the embeddings architecture and all that stuff is in motion still. I mean, this, this is the most fluid environment I've ever seen in data. And I lived through the big data craze. I lived through the Hadoop craze. And now we're living through the AI craze. And it's going to go for a while.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. It, you know, I was talking to one of the big oil and gas companies, the, one of the ones we all know, but I'm really not supposed to call out their name. And they were right. talking about AI and loading data um, into different models. And they were they have started to dissect out their data sets. And some is extremely proprietary. Where are their wells? Where are they um, researching for new opportunities for energy sources? And all the way out to much more public data things, you know, learnings about, you know, heat control on a, you know, on a rig or whatever it is. But they've kind of dissected their data sets into three different types. And two of them, even without really strong governance and auditing, they say, yeah, we can make it work. But there was one data set. They said until the industry figures out strict auditing, strict governance, we just won't play in the AI space. It's interesting that they're kind of thinking about, it from a different way that we'll take advantage of with as much data as we can until you guys as technologists sort some of this out and that makes sense too you can control which data you put in fortunately and still participate in the craze
1: right yeah and that this is a huge concern it has to be of cios and cdos and cso's and all these folks, but you have to figure saying no across the board is not the right answer. So right. you have to start playing around with something and have your policies and have your governance and have your audit trails in the form of these embeddings. And uh, I think that that should help solve it because, you, you know, the other great line I heard is that you know, AI won't so much take away jobs from people as it is the case that people who don't use AI are going to have a harder time getting jobs than those that do.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So the last topic I'd love to touch on a little bit is the idea of HPC and enterprise technologies. And a lot of these processes, creating data sets, processing, loading them into a supercomputer to learn things about the data, that's a very HPC-like workload. And I don't think enterprise has done a lot with this you know the idea of taking data sets loading them somewhere else processing them taking results it's a very new skill set i think in the enterprise do you see um kind of a convergence of hpc skill sets in the enterprise how how do you see this playing out so enterprise can really take advantage of all this
1: yeah i sure hope so i mean you and i chatted about this the other day And it's funny because we had not discussed this and I just brought it out of the blue and you smiled because it was obviously (laughs) something you had thought about. Yeah. But I remember as far back as like 2009, I went to an HPC conference in Austin when I was living down there and I looked all around and there was no sign of the enterprise. There were universities mostly. It's pretty academic. Mm -hmm. uh, And there were lots of hardware vendors and lots of cool things happening, but like nary a connection to the enterprise data world. And I'm thinking, well, that makes exactly zero sense at all. So I think that, you know, probably the the hunger and the thirst for compute power is going to force a bit of a convergence. I think that, you know, with chips now um, harder to get for various reasons, and hopefully that doesn't change for the worse in the near term, that's another factor. It's, uh, it's sort of a, a macroeconomic constraint that is bearing down on this industry. And when you think about the thirst to leverage these technologies – it's going to be huge. And so I think, and I hope we're going to see more of that. And I think that, you know, frankly, some of the universities are getting more savvy about recognizing that kids need real world experience. They have to start doing what they're going to be doing in their professional careers while in college and not just keep it so abstract. So I, I do think there are a lot of forces that are kind of pushing for that. And I really hope it happens because this HPC world has a tremendous amount of knowledge. They, of course, have great resources, hardware, physical hardware, assets. Universities typically do have pretty good buying power and good reasons to buy things. And so, and especially with the federated world that we were talking about before, and I, I think that uh, Web three zero is finally starting to crystallize into that You know, I was talking with Andreas. I mentioned he he laughed at that. He goes, oh, I was talking about 20 years ago when I getting bought back then, I'm like, okay. (laughs) But you're an old timer. Like, you've been doing this stuff. You know, the rest of us, not so much. Because it never really took off. You know, there was, like, the semantic web, and there were conferences around semantics. And, again, a lot of that sort of got baked into systems and and how we built the cloud. You think about service-oriented architecture. Remember SOA? I was researching SOA back in 2005 and 2006, and I remember thinking to myself, hmm... This is interesting. It doesn't seem to spell good news for the oracles and the SAPs of the world who have these monolithic architectures, because if you have service orientation, theoretically, you can pull this service and put a new one in. So even though SOA kind of went away, if you look at Kubernetes, it's similar in terms of its goal, its objective of, of federating compute. And so in this new very, very federated world, this new actual Web 3.0 world, I think that the universities are going to realize and the big corporate America types are going to realize, hey, we really should be working together much more tightly to leverage these assets and to make use of this stuff because it's going to to get more expensive. And like I say, the other shoe is yet to drop on, on Gen AI and all this stuff and what it's really going to cost. And I'm pretty sure it's going to cost more than it's costing now. (laughs)
0: you know you brought up oracle i was one of our investors was on their recent earnings call and highlighted a question that came across to larry ellison about now that data gravity has been overcome how does that change Oracle's strategy and he was clearly not prepared to answer that question (laughs) (laughs) you know you kind of talked about other things but i called up as a gentleman from deutsche bank and i talked to him about the question and why he brought it up and he said you know i keep hearing that data gravity is not real anymore. And I want to know how this changes our world because I feel like it does. And we were chatting about, well, you know, you have 5G, 10G networking, you have compute available in some places, but not all places for a myriad of reasons. And this idea of intelligently moving data, you actually can get over data gravity. And that does change, you know, what you can do with your data set. And you don't have to do it within Oracle but Oracle has a ton of your data, so you want to be able to leverage what you have. It is just right. such an interesting change, um, right. and I do believe you know to the level that you know even CEOs of some of these big companies are starting to be asked, you know, what is your strategy? And it, it's just fascinating to watch. So, Eric, as we tie up, I'd love to talk about skill sets, and you know, what as an advisor in AI, which we haven't talked a lot about that part of your job, but you you do and you do work as an AI analyst and. You, as you think about skill sets, companies should be hiring, or maybe skill sets people should be developing in their own repertoire. What do you recommend looking for to really be positioned for success?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think it uh, it goes back to the sort of Renaissance man, Renaissance woman concept. I think you want to find people who are genuinely curious. I think we need to foster curiosity. You know, I was watching uh, one. Calm call him a thought leader um, who talks a lot about cultural issues, and he was talking about the history of education and how a lot of the European and Western schools all adopted apparently the, the Prussian view of the world from like hundreds of years ago, two, three hundred years ago. And that if you really dig into all that, the objective back then was to create obedient citizens, right? People who would just follow the rules and do what they're told. And you think about it, well, that is kind of what we do in traditional Western education. Now there's Montessori, which took a different approach to all that, more of a, a personalized exploration of concepts, if you will. It's a little bit harder maybe to pull off. But when I think about skills and and having what you need to succeed in the new world obviously hard work you know showing up is is 50% of everything just be there on the job and learn stuff but having an open mind is extremely important because uh it allows you to think up new solutions and you know one of my developer friends has a great quote he says busy is the enemy of creative and his point is, if you're busy all the time, then you don't have time to think about stuff and to think about different ways of solving problems. And so I think problem solving is going to be really important. Um, having an open mind is probably one of the most important aspects or characteristics you can bring to the business world these days to think of new ways to do things and to understand workflows in different ways, to understand what can be automated, to be able to distill a business down to its processes its people and its its product or its service because you can you can outsource stuff now you can automate things you think about uh, how what do they say 50% of all the content on the web in a couple of years will be computer generated because of all this gen ai stuff I mean, really, it's, it's kind of uh, off to the races here in terms of new ways of doing things. And to me, the most important skill is really learning about yourself, too, right? One of my first bosses way back when told me something that will always stick with me. She said, look, you're always going to have your problems. You'll always have aspects of your personality that... You know, could hold you down, whether it's laziness or tardiness or, you know, dishonesty. For some people, I mean, I'm I'm distractible. That's my problem, and, and so I've sort of we joked about that. I've built my world around me to keep me focused so that I don't get distracted. But I think that really knowing yourself and knowing what you want to do is going to be really important because that'll keep you energized and keep you going. And I think that's going to be key for morale, which I've always viewed as the single most important component or characteristic of any company or any person, because when your morale is high, you do good stuff. When your morale is low, you can have all the money, all the resource, all the, the tools in the world, and you're not going to get good results. So you know, I think that open-mindedness and self-awareness and empathy to that, to that effect are going to be very, very valuable for, uh, for future workers and present workers.
0: That is an unexpected and awesome answer. I love that. (laughs) Instead of go to school for this title or that, I think it's great and highlights a lot of what will continue to move companies forward. I think that's great. So Eric, I have a feeling that people who have listened to this show will want to hear more from you. What's the best way to connect with you or hear some of the DM radio episodes? You talked at the beginning about a few places, but maybe just point to the best way to track you down
1: yeah sure so we're on podcast channels podcast resources dm radio called the longest running show in the world about data there's also inside analysis our other syndicated show coast to coast that's all about the information economy you can email me info at inside or info at dm radio.biz they both come right to me and then future proof it's all about how today's technology is designing tomorrow so to quote and then append william gibson he said the future is here already it's just not evenly distributed and i say yet
0: um eric thank you so much for taking time to join the show uh you have a lot of experience that you've learned over the tidbits you say you've learned each day it's amazing the things you've you've been you're able to cover and understand and really are forecasting too um, I, I really appreciate you joining the show
1: hey thanks for the invite uh, congratulations on a great show and uh, i want to learn more about HammerSpace too that sounds really really cool
0: awesome we'll definitely follow up on that <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained Powered by Hammerspace To learn more, visit hammerspace.com If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show Email me at molly at